Welcome back to Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 95 and our first episode of 2023. Um, thank you guys for supporting the show all of last year. We're very appreciative of everyone who watches. Before I jump into it, once again, I'm going to remind everyone as always, like, comment, subscribe, share this if you have any balls. Um, if you want to help us continue doing this, please donate because we don't make anything doing this. We just do it. Labor of love. With all of that said, today we're joined by a very fascinating and brave man, um, Kyle Serafin, an FBI whistleblower and a based patriot. Kyle, welcome. Thank you for, for taking this time to speak with us. Yeah, you bet, guys. Thanks for having me on. So recently, last month, you appeared at the Turning Point America Fest event where Sorry. you... You came out on stage. Um, you were the last one to come out, actually. And James O'Keefe called you one of the bravest men or the bravest man that he knows. And you were joined by a whole series of whistleblowers on stage. And we'll play a little, we're going to play a little clip of that just to show people. We're going to send a message to the powerful people in the world that we're not alone, that we can expose them. They will not intimidate us. They will not make us afraid. I want to introduce you to the most bravest person I've ever met. Someone who came to us from within the FBI to expose malfeasance and wrongdoing. Everyone, get on your feet and say hello to Kyle from the FBI. Thank you, James. I first swore to protect and defend our founding document in 2008. I was 26 years old. I've done that at least three more times. And that oath has become something integral to my being. The oath has compelled me to expose wrong. I guess he thought he forgot your last yeah. name right there. Kyle from the FBI. <laughs> Skip yeah, ahead a bit. He, he, he came and talked to me afterwards about that. It was kind of funny. He goes, sorry, I, I got really emotional on the stage. And I was like, why? <laughs> he goes, it was really moving. And I said, okay, well, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, no teleprompter at the, uh, Turning Point USA, oh, no. probably, a, probably a million dollars worth of LED screens behind me, and they didn't have a teleprompter, which I thought was really funny. I was like, "How about a podium?" No, how about a podium? Flashcards. Yeah, Tucker got a got a podium. I had flashcards. So it's low, okay. low tech. Yeah, low tech wins the day. Well, I, don't know, I feel like you. It comes across a little bit more genuine when you have the cards in your hand. You yeah. Well, so I know. Like, they had it scripted down to time. So it was, you know, I, I could have probably riffed and, and you guys will find out that I can talk for uh, all the days, all the hours, all the minutes. But when, um, you know, when you're on a time block where you got exactly two minutes to be able to knock it out, I, I had to kind of uh, keep it pretty tight. So I stayed right to the yeah. cards so that we could, you know, be on the time and we didn't want to run over. I watched some of the other people run over on their, um, on their, you know, whatever speeches and being up on the stage. And it's just, it's not good for everybody else. It pushes the timeline back. So, yeah. There's also, you know, it was a lot to organize this, I know, for Project Veritas to get all of these whistleblowers together at one place, one day to appear on stage. So, you know. Avoid avoid the FBI arrests, all that sort of thing. Right? <laughs> avoid the arrests. So on, on that note, I mentioned to you when I reached out to you that uh, Brent and I have a, a very personal interest in this subject because of our own encounters with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. When we first decided to start a podcast, um, one of our first journalistic adventures was we went to 
Washington, D.C. on January 6th to document, talk to people, interview, like, why are you here? All of that stuff. Yep. And uh, by the end of January, they showed up at my residence at the time in New Jersey looking for me. They knew about Brent, too. I was not there. I was in New York at the time. But um, someone who lives there let them in, which he should not have done. And they scared the living shit out of my grandma. She's like, you know, why are you here? My my grandson is not a criminal. He's an artist. Like, what is all this? You know, and they start asking her all these questions, et cetera, et cetera. They did not leave a card, which mm -hmm. was kind of unusual. So they didn't even leave any way for us to contact him back. My brother calls me and he's like, dude, the FBI just showed up looking for you. And I'm over here like freaking out. I'm like, what the hell is going on? So, you know, I called the Nork office in New Jersey and I'm like, what's up? You know, are, are you guys looking for me? They didn't know anything. They were like, oh, we don't know what you're talking about. Did they leave right. a card? And they were like, I was like, no, they did not leave a card. And he's like, well, that's, you know, kind of suspicious. Maybe you should call your local police department in case it's someone trying to like stake out your house and like rob you or something. I don't know. That doesn't sound like the FBI. Yeah, what that's what they said. It doesn't sound like the FBI. Um, granted, they showed badges and all of that stuff. So they did verify themselves according to my, my family. And then we call, I called the New York office to see if they were looking for us and they didn't know anything about that either. Wonderful. We waited. Yeah. We waited like a week or so. We hardly even went outside. It was really weird time in my Stressful. life. Yeah. They never showed up here looking for us. Fast forward a bit. Um, we were staying in Florida for a while. We left the city for a bit because we got tired of all the crap here with the lockdowns mandates. and mandates. A friend of ours has a house down there and he let us stay there for a while. And at the beginning of June in, in 2021, they showed up there, the Melbourne office. And they were, they were specifically looking for Brent this time. And we recorded that incident. We put it on our channel and everything. You know, we basically, after that first incident, we died down for a bit. We took a break from social media and we kind of had to make a choice. Like, all right, we knocked on the devil's door and the devil answered. Do we continue this or not? Do we get louder or do we just go back to a quiet life? And we were like, no, we're going to keep doing this. So they showed up again. They were looking for us in June. Um, didn't answer any questions. Basically told them, no, you know, no lawyer here. We're not talking to you. And that was that. They left us alone since then. But it was a really scary incident. A lot of people disappeared from our lives after that. Uh, just totally vanished, ghosted us, disassociated from us, all of that stuff. Sure. And, you know, it felt like a witch hunt. That's what it felt like. And this was yeah, one of the Dan, reasons Dan I wanted Bo to bring you on. Dan Bongino called uh, January 6th, turn in your MAGA neighbor week. Okay. <laughs> and he's not, he's not necessarily wrong. So yeah. I had some, in, you know, so I, I've got really strange. My whole story is very bizarre. You know, as an FBI agent, your, your goal is not to go out and seek publicity. At least mine wasn't. There are some yeah. that do. But generally speaking, your goal is to, to, you know, keep it low key, investigate criminals if that's your job, investigate spies or people that are violating national security issues. And if you're into counterterrorism, there are people that do that. You're supposed to find terrorists. Like it's pretty straightforward stuff. Yeah. But it doesn't often work out that way, which is really unfortunate. And um, it's, it's just, we've reached this time in this country where people are kind of stepping into this really bizarre political realm. And, and because of the way that, I didn't, I feel like I didn't really have a choice. I got back into a corner and my options were very similar to yours. I can be very quiet. I can let them just suspend me from a job that, uh, that they had no right to do that. They didn't follow any of the proper processes or I could get loud 
Um, and you know, so now I have got people that text me on a daily, like I got cash Patel texting me and I told him I was going to get loud, you know, and, and like, yeah. that's really weird. Like, okay. Uh, Sebastian Gorka's people just texted me a few seconds ago. We're going to do an interview with him. And, uh, and I talked to Seb a bunch and he's a good guy. So, you know, for the people that are in the sphere that are in this, this fight, it's an information fight really at this point. Um, you know, they're all kind of in my world. And so one of them is Matt Taibbi, uh, who's been doing the Twitter files. Yes. I talked to him well before he got into the Twitter files thing. I think that came up afterwards. In fact, um, what he told me was, is that I was going to be the next story he was writing. And then of course the, probably one of the biggest stories of the decade popped into his lap. So I can't fault him for that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he shared with me something that said that the FBI basically evaluated something like 118,000 or 120,000 leads between January 6th and that first week. Wow. Um, I, I saw hundreds of them. So in no uncertain terms, is that unfamiliar to me? And I knew that we had a queue, a, a line of them that were to be evaluated that were, you know, 10,000, 20,000 plus per day. And we'd knock that all the way Jesus. down. And by the morning, they'd be back all the way up again. So I know that that's true. I mean, the 120,000 mark is probably light for the entirety of it, but it is absolutely what happened for that first week. 120,000 leads for sure. How many of those turns into federal cases? including trespassing cases, which are complete garbage, by the way. Yeah. How many of those? Um, almost none. We're talking about 900 subjects have been, have been arrested for January 6th related activities. So in the first week, I, I would say that it continued going on for a couple of weeks. We probably had 300 to 500,000 leads. These are somebody getting on there and keyboard wiring. You know, I hate, I hate Dan and Brent and, and their a-holes and, and they were at January 6th. So you got to get yes. them. So that, that, that's actually, that's actually what I suspect may have happened is that someone who knows me and does not like me for sure tipped, tipped the feds off and they were like, Hey, here's Look, your there, lead. Were, there were hundreds of thousands of people that got involved in this witch hunt. Uh, and you're, you're using the word, I think appropriately. I think that's an accurate statement. That's what these people did. So you can't, you can't discount the amount of division that happens in a country when we're willing to report someone that we don't like their politics to the FBI for what? Like, what was the federal crime that was alleged, right? Did they ask you anything specific that gave you, you know, instincts on what they were looking for? No, they, they, they yeah. sort of, they said they wanted to talk to us about January 6th, and I said that I was not willing to discuss well, it with them. What's, what's interesting? Without a lawyer, without charges, you know, right. because of the political nature of the event, it didn't seem like inappropriate. And then I heard stories, you know, in the intervening years about, you know, polite old women that invited these men into their homes, served That's them right. tea and cookies, and ended up facing federal charges because, you know, they... To just you know totally were, did what they thought was yeah. they didn't think they did anything wrong you know whether they right. walked in through open doors whether they were a little too close to the building uh you know they they, they had no idea they did anything wrong can so i were completely no, honest i want to ask kyle something though um do the fbi offices in different states communicate with one another of course absolutely so when they showed up in florida they tried to play dumb they they asked brent like well you probably know we why we want to talk to you today and brent said well no i'm actually not sure because you guys showed up in new jersey looking for my partner you didn't leave a card all this stuff we called two offices trying to figure out what was going on and then by the end of that they were just like oh well we don't know anything about that but are you willing to talk with us today that's that's plausible to be fair yeah. right so the communication is one thing um full download and debrief by different agents doing different types of work you know the, the likelihood is that there was a lead that was cut a lead is a like an internal tip okay um so they'll they'll send this thing over an electronic service and it pops up and so here i am i'm you know i'm kyle Seraphin working in new mexico bah, 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 bah. it's like hey i sent you a lead 
And I go, okay. So I read the lead and it says, case agent wants you to do the following, like conduct an interview, you know, find out where, you know, any information regarding January 6th, you know, subjects are this, this is their identifiers this is where we believe they live. This is the phone number or not. Maybe they'll just give me nothing. Like here's a social security number, you know, here's a photo and go find them. So it kind of depends on the, the, the amount of information they send. And then when you get that, you, you can reach out to the agent that's running the case and, and ask them some questions and, and maybe get that information. But a lot of people will just go out and just conduct the interview. You don't have to go and get a full debrief. And if I, if I reach out and I send them something like on a Skype or like a link, um, you know, text messaging and internally uh, instant messaging, I might ask him a question like, Hey, you know, you know, did you see these guys ever? It's like, yeah, we knocked on the door, but they weren't there. That could be it. Yeah. So there may not be a lot of like uh, back and forth. Like, here's what we know about them. This is what we got. This is what we suspect that may not happen. And sometimes that's good. Cause you get a really good cold read on people. You come back and you've got just, uh, you know, somebody who doesn't know anything else. They just are coming out to talk to you. I don't really like to operate that way. I like to know the facts. I like to tell people information. And then I like to give them the opportunity to speak to me or not, because you're not compelled to speak to the FBI. And, and you, I think you guys did the right thing for what it's worth. Um, there's no reason that's going to benefit you to that you should talk to them at that point. Now, if they want to bring some information in, if they want to say, hey, you know, bring an attorney and come sit down and talk to us, or look, we're really looking for footage, and it might be that you have them, then you negotiate whether that makes sense. And I, yeah. I've talked to, um, you know, media companies that just turned over everything right away. They were like, yeah, we don't want anything to do with this. That's an option. I think that's the wrong option because the FBI doesn't have a right to any of your personal property, into your intellectual property. They have no right to pull that unless they want to go get court orders to get it. Right. And if they didn't, we're talking about a, a kind of a laziness that exists. Um, I'm not thrilled about them going in, just knocking on door. Like they can knock on anybody's door and you can choose to talk to them or not. So my recommendation for most people is don't talk. What, yeah, why, yeah. what, what are they going to get out of there? That's going to benefit you. Never talk to the feds yeah. is the rule. There's just, there's no <laughs> to it. So, and here's the thing. People talk to me all the time, but I, I like to believe that a lot of it's because I used to do outside sales. I, I have a kind of a very honest operation when I go mm -hmm. and tell people and I'll say, listen, I'm going to talk you listen. When I'm done talking, if you want to speak to me afterwards, that's your choice. I'm going to try to give you enough information to make a good decision. And a lot of times people will speak to me, um, you know, whether they're trying to clear something up or whatever it may be. But a lot, you know, a lot of times people that are guilty will talk to you because they want to know what you know. Mm, okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But when we're talking about something like this, this is a political activity, this is something you guys attended and I assume you attended sort of as journalists and, and you're documenting and you're doing that sort of thing. Like, yep. There's, a, there's some really strict protocols as far as what DOJ and the FBI are allowed to do. And so they're walking down a very dangerous path when they come out there and they ask you to compel it. Um, as a great example, I'll just give you kind of, uh, you know, your, your viewers something to, to compare it against. I had a, a, an allegation in New Mexico that uh, there was a guy who was breaking sex offender registry, and he was. Um, but the reason behind it was much more complicated than I had initially been reported. So I start looking into this guy. And he was a registered sex offender in the state. Um, he had a record that was sealed since 2005. So we didn't have the details of why he was registered. And that became relevant later. But um, there was uh, basically the, the, the USA Today's uh, subsidiary in El Paso, which I can't remember what it's called, the El Paso Times or The Sun or something. Yeah. They have It's a Gannett Media organization. They had a, uh, a photographer go down and he left the country and took pictures with a bunch of kids in Mexico, uh, outside of Juarez. And so, you know, that was pretty much documentation that he was breaking the sex offender registry on a federal level and on a state level. Hmm. So the question then became why and what was going on. And all I wanted to do, and I reached out, you know, the way that I have to, which is I had to contact our attorneys, 
they went through and got a contact over at Gannett and they asked, can I interview your, your uh, photographers and your reporters that, that ran the story? I want to confirm that the photos that purport to be in Juarez are in fact in Juarez. That's it. That's all I want. Very, very straightforward. Yeah. And if, if possible, would you be interested in sharing those photos with me voluntarily so we could do a metadata analysis for location? Uh, they flatly turned me down. And I was told to cease and desist unless we went and got a subpoena, which we could have done. Um, but then I did some intervening information. I found out that, in fact, this guy's, you know, the reason he was on the sex offender registry was a, a, really an innocuous situation. You guys look like you're young enough that uh, 2005 is not strong in your memory. But I was uh, just out of college in 05. And <laughs> I love how people think that I graduated in so. 2005. I was 15. I turned 15 in 2005. I'm 32 now. Brent is 40. Okay, fair enough. So if you remember at the, in 2005, um, you know, Napster was still running around. There was file yeah. sharing programs, things yep. like that. So you guys were Meta Metallica was really mad about it. <laughs> That's right. So during that time, um, you know, people also traded pornography, which was not nearly as, as accessible online as it is today. And one of the things that people would do was like massive file dumps. They would just throw out like big folders and yeah. then anybody could grab it. Well, this guy happened to be one of those people. He was, uh, you know, had some sort of a pornography obsession of some sort. And at the time he had gigabytes, which was a really big deal. And so he had downloaded just gigabytes of, of, of pornography and it included less than 10 per the, the complaint, less than 10 images of child pornography, which were tagged mm. and marked and known. And so the Bureau, you know, did a, a search warrant. I believe it was the FBI that went and did the search warrant. That's what we used to do. And they went out there and, uh, and rounded him up and, and he actually surrendered his laptop, no problem. And when they left, he realized that they didn't take all of his laptops. He had another laptop. That was actually the one that actually had the, the uh, unlawful images. And so he went and surrendered it. So this is not a guy that's out there trying to avoid something. And, and if, yeah. if you can imagine when you download an entire you know, folder that has thousands or hundreds of thousands of images, the odds of you knowing that there were 10 images of child pornography, one, that wasn't targeted most likely, and two, you probably didn't know. So it becomes a much less uh, threatening situation for him. You know, I, I, as a father, I'm much less worried about that guy just knowing what the world is like. And so that's, you know, that wasn't a big deal. So we didn't pursue, pursue a case against him. Um, he, he was on the registry. He violated the state law. They went after him with that. But federally, we did not. But more importantly, I was unable to confirm any of the things that would have been violations of federal law with the news media organization because they were not interested in sharing with me. And that right. was the end for me. So the idea that you would volunteer something, you don't have to. And the lawyers would say no. And then we'd have to either go get a subpoena for your records, which they could, they could still do. If they want to do that, which they don't, they could go and subpoena your records and they have to subject it to all the First Amendment protections that you should have operating in the sphere as a journalist. Yeah, like I figured if they wanted, they really wanted our footage, they could have asked for it in any number of ways, including they could have, you know, filed a subpoena yeah. for it, gotten a warrant, they could have, yeah. gotten a warrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah they could that, have had a search warrant if, that, if they thought there was, but they would have to show that there was evidence of a crime. There has to be PC, probable cause. So that, that changes the game, whether or not they're willing to engage in that. A lot of people volunteered, as you said, and a lot of people got implicated through otherwise innocuous information, things that they didn't think they were, you know, disclosing evidence of a crime to anyone. So yeah, I'm, I'm you, you, my, my little power smoothie here. Yeah, so no, it's all good. You, you mentioned you like, don't know what laws you're violating. Well, you sometimes. mentioned the trespassing thing, and it's yeah, like, trespassing look, by, by the time the majority of those people ended up close to the Capitol building, the yeah. barricades were already taken down. It, it was not obvious where you could be and could not be on those grounds anymore. It just right. wasn't. But that doesn't mean that they couldn't retroactively drop the geofence. Sure. What they did, sure. And then yeah. decide who was in, a, in violation of areas that they were that were uh, protected. Um, all of that's really dangerous. You know, I have, yeah. I have a, a serious problem with that. Just I, I was um, I was in the area. I worked in D.C. at that time. 
on just on that day, I happened to have personal leave for two days in a row and I was in, in doing a uh, shooting class. So I'm out in Frederick, Maryland, which is north of, of DC, north and uh, west of DC. And I'm out training with a bunch of local cops. Most of these guys, you know, they still have pagers or whatever, like the equivalent of a pager was that went off and said they had to respond because there's mutual aid agreements between DC and between um, all these surrounding counties and their SWAT teams. So I'm shooting with SWAT guys and then, you know, beep, 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 beep. And then everyone's like getting these things. They're like, uh, somebody is, is banging on Nancy Pelosi's desk. Like somebody is, you know, swinging the gavel around and we're cracking up. Cause it's hilarious. Like what in the hell is going on down there? You know, we're just a bunch of guys that are doing, you know, pistol draws. And then you, you find out like, Oh, like something went sideways and having worked in DC for, for five years, you know, there are, there are very few cities. New York might be one of the exceptions. Um, I, don't, I think Los Angeles is not even close to the number of street protests that happened, you know, on any given day. It just happens all the time. Yeah. So the, un, the unbelievable scenario where you have Washington, D.C., which has some of the best riot control probably in this country, just based on the number of protests and riots that come out, that they were unprepared, it's unconscionable. Yeah. And we're starting to see some of that evidence come out as well right now. It's right, like people are... They were willingly allowing this sort of thing. Why? That's, that's, that's what Brent and I also suspected just from not just our experiences that day, but just from reading about information afterward and looking into this stuff. It's just like, how, how were you not prepared for this? How was it that you had a 10 foot fence erected the next day, but you couldn't have one put around that? Right. I mean, so the, yeah, the anti-scale, the anti-scale fencing, they have, you know, open contracts with those to put that stuff up um, whenever it's necessary. It goes up. And, and, you know, I can contrast what happened on January 6th, which I was not physically at, to the experience of being at St. John's Church yeah. the day after it was burned. Yes. And but that, that wasn't an insurrection. Just saying. That wasn't. <laughs> Never Correct. forget 52901. Yeah. 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 Everyone forgets yeah. that one. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of really wild things that happened in D.C. for a full year. And we watched it yeah. all go down. And so, you know, my... my uh, squad and, and some of the folks that, that I worked with in the, in the field office there were sent out wearing FBI body armor, marching around in DC, which is totally bizarre. Like that's not what federal agents are trying to do. Like we're investigators. That's the goal. Yeah, right. The goal is investigation, not, uh, not presence control. you're not, you're not an infantryman. Right. So there's no reason for you to be marching around DC with a rifle, but a lot of us were, hmm. um, Interesting. I, I, I chose not to carry a rifle because it seems stupid. Yeah. Um, and then and then they had us marching around in front of like areas that the National Guard had already physically staked out with like sandbag location, what I call defensive fighting positions. Um, I don't know if they were officially like calling them DFPs, but like that's what they had set up. They set up these deuce and a half trucks. They throw their sandbags up. They were all hanging out there. They're unarmed, which is bizarre. Um, so you had National Guard on every corner of all the, uh, you know, kind of like a green zone in D.C. Mm. And none of that was the politically contentious area. And then you look over and suddenly you see that they, these um, you know, there was still an Antifa presence. There was still uh, lawful protesting, which is allowed. There's, you're allowed to voice yourself. Usually you got to get a permit to go march around and block a street off. But DC kind of rolls with the, with the punches on that one quite a bit. So just, you know, the, the contrast, it's not so much that what happened on, on January 6th that I think is so concerning as the contrast to what would normally happen in DC, which a lot of us know, and a lot yeah. of us saw all the time, you know, when you work in that environment, you just see it daily. 
Yeah, the one thing that uh, really struck me about the uh, House GOP report that was released, uh, you know, right along the time when Nancy Pelosi and her little special kangaroo court committee released their, you know, all roads point to Trump or all roads lead to Trump report. Sure. The GOP members showed that the FBI was in constant communication with Pelosi and, and D.C. Capitol Police. They knew what was going to happen, and they intentionally sort of relaxed the security protocols. Mm -hmm. And the question really is why? Did they want a January 6th style event in order to disrupt the proceedings so that they could, you know, psyop, blame Trump, spin, and, spin it on the and, media? Yeah. I wonder if Kyle's familiar with John Sullivan in the case of John Sullivan. Oh, John Earl Sullivan. Have you, have you uh, heard his name? He's the uh, Antifa guy that was uh, that sold his footage to CNN or to whoever. Yes. Right? Yeah. Although and a lot of the Antifas disavow him because he had uh, gotten them into some trouble in Portland by leading sure. their marchers into. So he's uh, just a, a very suspicious character. I mean, he's sure. not he's not locked up right now. Whereas you have all these other January six people who are locked up. He got right. the best footage of Ashley Babbitt getting shot, and if you look at the entirety of his footage. There are many moments where he's deliberately trying to rile these people up, saying, burn yeah. this shit down, trying to make something happen. I don't know if you've yeah. ever seen the movie Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. I have, yes. Very much movie. something along those lines where it's like, well, I'm going to make the story happen. And it's like, were you put up to that to get something to happen to then have your footage immediately end up on the news and then you like, add the in the night. fact that his father was a relatively high colonel in the military and his brother is also yeah. involved in conservative uh proud boys he, he was involved yeah. with the proud boys and also started his own black conservative group so it just it doesn't it comes across as yeah. shady and he's still around he's still out there he's still making content we don't who's funding him how is he paying for all of he that? has a I mean, very like, his youtube channel is still yeah. up still producing content and it's very high production value yeah. so somebody <laughs> is paying to generate this content you know at some level yeah and again how is that guy not locked up with the other january 6 people no it's i mean it there's a lot of sort of concerning pieces to that. And um, the, the problem is I don't know that we're going to find the answers out because I don't think they're investigating it honestly. No. And, and that's troubling to me because I think there's a lot of really good people in the FBI. There's honest people. There's friends of mine that still work there. Um, that doesn't mean that the agency can continue to exist. You can only yeah. tarnish the brand so much. As my buddy said the other day, uh, you know, OJ Simpson was, uh, you know, was law abiding for 23 of the 24 hours on, on that faithful day in uh, yeah. was it, 94 or something like that. So, um, let, so, you know, let's, let's consider this. It's like, yes, you can be law abiding for most of your life. You can, you can be a decent person for most of your life and still go to jail for life because you do something either as in a crime of passion or you choose to get involved with someone. Look at these guys in the, the Whitmer situation, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Whitmer, you know, as uh, Julie Kelly likes to call it the fed napping case, uh, and, and and Julie Kelly's done really good reporting on that over at American greatness. So you can see yep. those websites. Love there. her work. She's fantastic. And Constantly the, following her stuff. And, you know, and, and I, and she's in my, she's one of those people I talk to every once in a while as well. We've had, you know, a couple hours with a conversation and she's dialed in when it comes down to these people were otherwise unable to do a lot of the things they did. They would not have been able to enact a useful, you know, even a prosecutable scheme without the FBI's assistance. And at the same time, they're going to go to jail for 16, 19 years. Yeah for something that they did for a few minutes or even for a few weeks of their lives when otherwise they lived a law abiding life, you know, something like that. It's troubling. It's, you know, I know a lot of people like to ask me like, what, what about Ray Epps? It's like, I don't know about Ray Epps. Neither do you. 
uh, and neither does anybody else, but there's some really interesting pieces to it. There are obviously incriminating videos of him speaking. And the only thing that it led me to believe and a number of other agents that I work with, and this is highly speculative, is that he, he's in somebody's source room somewhere. And that doesn't mean he was there because he was told to be there. So right. we have two different ways that you can be. You can uh, be what's called tasked. Tasked means I'm an agent. You're my source. I'm looking okay. for something. I task you to go into that coffee shop and see if they will actually sell you drugs that they have it behind the counter. And if you say the right things that you can get access to it. Okay. All right. So that's tasking. I specifically tell you that. Another thing might be I hire you or I, I, I put you on the, um, you know, on the books. I recruit you as a source. I tell you, don't operate without me. Don't do this thing, whatever else. And then you go and do something in your life that you would normally do. And you, you get information or, or you act a certain way. And then you go like, oh, and then you come to me and you go, hey, I want to make I want to report this to you. Look what I, you know, look what I experienced. Hmm. And then I write that up as well. So that was untasked. But you may have been able to do that. Now, let's say you went and did something illegal. Um, you have to have authorization to do that. It's called otherwise illegal activity. Um, what is it? It's called, yeah, it's called OIA. You get, an, you get an authorization to conduct otherwise illegal activity from the United States Attorney's Office that you're working with. And so I would give you explicit permission to go buy those drugs, not to just find out if you can get them. Because if you went and bought those drugs without anybody signing off on it, then you're just a guy who's buying drugs. So now you're committing right. the felony is. Yeah. But if I were to tell you, look, I'm going to give you money. We're going to track it. We're going to wire you. We're going to send you in. You're going to buy it. You're going to come back to me. Otherwise, illegal activity is an authorization. And, and I mean, you've seen this stuff going back to movies like Donnie Brasco. Like this is not, this is not, you know, inside baseball. But for you to be able to engage in certain things, you have to have certain permissions. Now, if you went out there and engaged in those things and came back to me and then told it to me and it was interesting to my case, but I didn't authorize you to do that, we're in a real pickle here. <laughs> because you can make me look really bad. You can probably show us that we're, if we excuse it, you're complicit yeah. um, in some illegal activity as a, as a fed. So there's a, there's some, um, some real gray zone, maybe even just like black letter law that you're crossing the, the border of. So how do we fix that? Maybe you ignore it. I don't know. So th those are the, those are the concerns that I have when you look at that kind of thing. It's like, is he in somebody's source room? Would it have been embarrassing for the FBI to have outed him and to go out and open court and indict him? And then him say, I was working on behalf of DHS. Like I got a, you know, HSI, a handler and he told me to go do this or he implied that it would be good and now hsi has to defend itself or whatever and i'm just using dhs as an example right. but i kind of had that instinct that if he was going to be working for someone <clears throat> and i don't have any you know i don't have any uh, knowledge that he is but dhs is a big entity they got a lot of money they have a lot of different programs working and they've got some different way than the, the fbi would have so just one of those weird things where you look at it and you just go i i don't know the answer here but there's a lot of suspicious behavior yeah we obviously have a lot of footage that did not get released so there's a there's a lot of questions that may be able to be answered. Yeah, I was I wondering a lot, a lot when you're talking about January 6th. Yeah, they they also there was one point that came up that they opened doors that were electronically locked. And so yep, who opened who opened those doors? I mean, there's just so right. many questions surrounding that day. A lot, a lot of questions. That, and we, it's, it's, it, like, it's like you said, it's impossible to get an impartial investigation because all of our investigative apparatuses like the FBI, like DHS, like the Department of Justice yeah. are corrupt and heavily politically biased in one direction. Yeah. So. Well, that's a good lead into um, backtracking a bit. And I guess I wanted to ask Kyle, what what was it that really made it click for you that I, I need to say something. What specifically did you see happening within the FBI that made you decide, all right, I'm, I'm going to blow the whistle. I'm going to say something about this. This is wrong. 
Sure. Uh, I mean, I, when I first got out of Quantico, I was assigned to a counterintelligence squad, and that's uh, information for the sake of information gathering. Um, I was doing investigations, and, and it didn't appear that there was any allegation of criminal activity for the people that were, I was, that were the subjects of my investigations. Yeah. That's what they do. It's authorized legally, but it feels really uncomfortable when that's not what you kind of thought you were getting into. So right? that part, that's, that sets, that's the primer. That's the base coat. Okay. Um, I requested to leave that area because I just don't, I just couldn't have a passion for doing that kind of work. And I, I found it to be really off-putting. Also, they're, they're really, um, you know, if we're going to investigate you for counterintelligence purposes, and there's something that's pretty obvious to me as the case agent that this is just a, a garbage case, um, that it was, you know, instigated under false pretenses or the pretenses were legitimate, but we immediately disproved those and it's time to close it. And it's been open for six years. Mm. I'd rather go. Just, I just like to go interview you and talk to you over. And I'm 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 a pretty good judge of speaking to people and and getting you know like I said people tend to talk to me, um, so that's what I would rather do. And that's not the way that they operate. They're very secretive. I used to mm. tell people for the first two years I was in D.C. that I was a secret agent for the FBI, <laughs> and they would go, do, "Do you mean a special agent?" And I'd say, "No, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm a secret agent. Everything that I write says secret on it. Mm. Secret. So it was all it was all classified once I wrote yeah. something up." And, and I didn't much care for that. So I, I requested to move to a surveillance team. They kind of told me that was torpedoing my career, you know, your career. Um, that I, I was just trying to make it to the next year without resigning because I just yeah. <laughs> And honestly, oh, I mean, so in 20, so I, I joined in 2016. In 2018, I had this conversation, you know, beginning of the year. My supervisor was like, where do you see yourself in five years? And I was like, well, it's much shorter. <laughs> Excuse me. I said, it's much shorter than that. Um, you know, by... Um, by June of, of 2019, I'm going to be resigning if I still work here in this office. So what do you want to do next? And that didn't go anywhere. But uh, six months later, I was able to get a transfer. And I, I was able to transfer to the surveillance squad, which was way more interesting stuff. It's way more old school FBI. It's what we call Pfizer or physical surveillance. So you're out um, you know, watching bad guys and occasionally get put on counterterrorism cases. And we get to do white collar fraud. And we get to do gangs. And we get to do all of it. Like, you know, and some counterintelligence, but much less. Mostly it's criminal allegations, criminal cases, and then I got to travel around and see some stuff. Excuse me one sec. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Brent's a little sick. I'm too, also. I, uh, I, yeah. I picked this thing up uh, over the just before New Year's Eve, and it was like I did a I did like a 18 hours of driving over three days. And oh yeah. Stayed one you know two nights in a hotel. It's just anytime I'm on, I've been on the road like a bunch of the last three weeks, so I just picked up this call. But essentially, you know, I'm looking at this, and I moved to the yeah, the the surveillance team. And much more interesting work, but right away you look at it and you go like, we're out of policy half the time that we're doing our timesheets. We're doing some really kind of weird things as far as taking our time, getting them um, published. So I, I actually went to the, uh, we don't have a, we don't have a union. We have uh, what's called an agents association. Okay. So I went, to, I went to this group called FLIOA, which is the federal law enforcement officers association. And I asked them can you write me a letter and, and share my complaint that like our, we're out of policy with our timesheets. And so the, the FLEO attorney assigned to me wrote this two page letter, you know, specifics and so on and sent it off to the office of general counsel with the FBI saying, basically um, the way that you guys have these guys doing their timesheets, you're either going to ask them to lie and screw themselves out of overtime. And I did quick calculations and the FBI probably owes me between 20 and $50,000 with overtime. Wow. For the three years that I did this. I mean, it's, it's really, really straightforward. They schedule your shift. If you're scheduled, then you're entitled to overtime. Most people right. in the FBI are not scheduled. 
They are um, they're contract employees that get what's called law enforcement availability. So let's say I'm working a case on on Monday and I, I do my 10 hours of work and I do that five days in a row and I still have more things that need to get done on Saturday. You know, I finish Friday, we close out, I'm working late and then I got to do something on Saturday. Well, that's called law enforcement availability. They call you in because you got to do work. So be it. Like, that's what you sign up for. You get a 25% premium on your GS pay and they don't pay you unscheduled overtime. You're just, it's part of the expectation that you're going to get the job done. Interesting. But if they schedule you, for example, like I would be scheduled out 16 days in a row or 14 days in a row where we would not stop. We would go to Tampa or we would go to Kansas City or we'd go to Portland or we'd go to you know Pittsburgh and we'd be following around some subject. If we're on the schedule where they're like, you got to show up at this hour, you got to relieve the following, you know, the previous team, follow this guy for X number of hours, then you're going to hand off to the next team. That's a very regimented different thing. It's not very common in the FBI to have shift work, but we were on shifts. And so if I work for 14 days in a row, you got a couple of days of overtime that you're going to owe me. Um, just That's the way the federal employment law works. And the FBI yeah. go like, oh, well, those are unscheduled. It's like bullshit. Hmm. No, they're not. They are scheduled over time. They are written down in advance. I have an email that says that this is the expectation that I'm going to be there. So, you know, I, I blew the whistle on this. And the other problem, well, blew the whistle because that's a dumb expression. But, um, you know, I just had OGC made aware of it. And the real problem that I would see as an agent, like moreover, like forget the money because it's not about that. Um, I mean, it is for a lot of people, but it's not it was like sure. that wasn't my major concern. My concern is that what you're setting me up for is let's say I observe something on that Saturday when I'm scheduled and I see you know, Dan out there conducting a drug transaction or buying a weapon and he's a, a terrorist subject, whatever it may be. Okay. <laughs> Let's say that happens and I document it. And then the defense attorney says, you know, calls me on the stand, which I didn't ever have to testify to our surveillance stuff. That's kind of the way that it works, but let's say they did because they could. And they say, you know, agent Seraphin, did you, uh, you know, witness, you know, Dan buying this weapon? I go, absolutely. Yes, I did. Okay. And what day was that on? Well, it was on, you know, January 15th. And he goes, January 15th was a Saturday. And you say, yes, that's correct. That's what the surveillance sheet says. Okay. Well, I have your timesheet here. And it says that you swore and attested that you did not work on that Saturday. So when were you lying? When you did your timesheet or when you were observing, you know, actually observing my, my client? That's a problem. Right? And I go, well, I, I just lied to my timesheet. We all do that. And you go, oh, interesting. What other things have you lied about when you've been an FBI agent? And you're like, done. you are now done as an agent. You can no longer testify. It's called Giglio material. There's a whole uh, court case about it. That says okay. that you must disclose this anytime you go testify. It's like mm -hmm. I was being lying under oath and I have to swear an oath that my timesheet is correct. You've put all of wow. us out. So that was the first thing that I saw. This is a long-winded answer, but I know we got a little bit of time to kind of flesh these out. So I saw that. Um, that's not cool. That's not the way that we all kind of go. Like nobody wants to be dishonest on their timesheet of all things, yeah. but that's what they get you for if they want to come get you. Everybody's got some dishonesty on their timesheet, not because they want to, but because the system doesn't work for FBI agents. It's designed for support employees who work regular shifts, and we do not do that. So that sucks, and it's frustrating. So I put that sort of you know information in. I never heard a thing about it. They completely ignored me. You know, what are you What are you going to do? Um, that's kind of the way it operates. It's like I don't know. What am I going to do about it? So I kind of moved on with my life with that. But it's not it's not optimal by any means. And then um, the real kind of backstop where I was like, this is the end, I'm not backing any further, was that when the COVID mandates came down, which was a roughly September of last year of 2021. And that coincided uh, almost exactly like to like a couple of weeks with this, uh, this email that went out from our criminal division and our counterterrorism division 
stating that the FBI was creating a new threat tag. A threat tag is like a hashtag that you would be able to tag information with. So if you went and searched for it, you know, it's, it's, it's threat tagged. Um, mm. And it was, you know, it was called EDU officials and it was to identify potential threats against school board officials, which is going to be done by parents. Obviously that's who's at school board meetings um, or concerned members of the community. So this came down and it was five days after Merrick Garland got up in front of the, um, let's say he was in front yeah. of the house. And he testified that the FBI would not be using, the DOJ right. would not be using what he called, uh, what they were talking about were Patriot Act tools. Yeah. Uh, but, but essentially, I would refer to that as more broadly counterterrorism resources to, um, to investigate parents. And it's like, well, it looks like he's lying. So either he's, he's incompetent and he doesn't know what the FBI is doing, or he's lying because he does know. Either way, that's a big problem for me. And so that's what I reported to my congresswoman on uh, October 27th last year. And like I say, it coincided with me already telling them that I was not going to get a COVID shot. I wasn't going to do that. And I wasn't going to uh, test for COVID because they wanted us to do a nose swab every 72 hours. Yes. Ah. Which was designed to frustrate you into compliance and to get it was a compliance purge. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. I agree. So that wasn't going to happen. And, and you guys may not be aware of this, but uh, you know, I've been a nationally registered paramedic um, since 2012. So I've been for over a decade, I've been in the medical profession of, of some degree. I, I'm definitely not a high level medical professional, yeah. but I've got a lot of experience when it comes to, you know, compared to most people, I've got literally thousands of clinical hours in hospital. I have thousands of clinical hours outside of the hospital on an ambulance and, and running around in the field. And so, and I also had a top secret clearance. And so it's pretty straightforward for me. It's like, well, you got two choices. You can either pull my security clearance because I'm not trustworthy or you can trust that a guy who has a decade's worth of medical experience and training and has literally conducted hundreds, if not thousands of nasal swabs for, for the flu when I worked in an emergency room, you know, I can be trusted to stay home if I have the sniffles, if I, with a box of Kleenex, yeah. I just want to be sick. And if you're going to try to have me do this thing for compliance, which is what it appeared to be about, I'm not in, I, I, I I'm not going to show up. I, I, re I reject that altogether. And I also, I put in a, a, um, an EEO complaint saying that it was a religious discrimination because the only people they were having tests were basically um, uh, unvaccinated Christians. That was the only yeah. people that were. And almost everybody had a Christian bend on it. It was mostly pro-life um, was the, the allegation or the, you know, the, the objection to getting the shots. So it was pretty straightforward. Like, I, I don't believe in discrimination of anybody. I don't care what your story is. I don't have to agree with you. I don't have to like you but I'm not going to be involved in illegal discrimination. And that includes me. You know, I'm not going to discriminate against me either. So uh, that was really straightforward for me. I wrote that up. It was accepted as an EEO complaint. The, uh, the FBI actually finished adjudicating it last month. And then they are not releasing it until maybe about a week from now because they get 30 days to censor it in case there's anything classified in there. Anything classified about me mm. picking my nose with a, with a Q-tip, uh, <laughs> which is beyond belief. But it is what it is. That's the way it went down. And then amusingly for me, um, they continued to retaliate against me once I came back into the office, because as you guys may remember, um, in March of last year, no, sorry, March of this year, um, Joe Biden gave the State of the Union and they moved the goalposts where we could actually watch them moving them about the way that they were calculating COVID levels. And suddenly everybody was in a green area and most of America was safe and all this other BS. And so you're looking at it and you go like, uh, okay. So I was allowed to go back in the office because they cut the testing requirement. It went away. And so once I came back in the office and I don't think the people that, that kicked me out of the office thought that was going to be the case. Now they're, they got a problem because now they got this guy who basically refused to do any of the things they said. I was one of very, very few people who did that. Now I'm back in the office. What do you do? So they, they ended up, um, taking my badge and my gun six weeks later. And wow. Full time. 
So it was pretty obvious. And in those six weeks, I documented something like 11 instances of obvious either, you know, uh, EEO violation retaliation or whistleblower retaliation or both, which it probably was both. Because, I, I mean, who knows what the motivation yeah. of the part is. But I know that I was a problem from, and, uh, you know, one of my buddies is a lawyer and uh, works for the Bureau. And he let me know that someone from headquarters reached out and said, hey, we got this guy. He's a whistleblower and he's a COVID vax refuser in Albuquerque. Wow. I was in the Albuquerque office. Um, what do we do with him? And he said, promote him. <laughs> he's, a great, he's a good dude. But, uh, but that was not that was not obviously what happened. They, they pulled my badge and my gun and kicked me out of the office on June 1st. My pay was suspended. So, you know, I got paid for about, I don't know, like nine or 10 weeks of this year so far, but they, they consider me an employee. Like the FBI yeah, well, considers me an active that, employee. That's what I was about to ask you. Like technically you are still an, uh, an FBI employee. You're just suspended without pay. Correct. So I would say that that's an insane proposition that an FBI employee yeah. could be without pay for most of the yeah. year. <laughs> so nuts. I, and, and if you look at federal employment law, the way that they would define this is what's called constructive discharge, which is essentially to say that they have done everything that you would assume that you are no longer an employee, yeah. but they don't have the nuts to actually call you, uh, you know, terminated or fired. And that's where I wow. sit. So if anybody asks, you know, my take on it, like I said, I don't care what the FBI says about me because I don't work for them. I haven't worked for them since June 1st when they kicked me out and they stopped paying me. We're done. Like it's not like they put me on a. Um, it's not like they put me on a suspension for disciplinary reasons. There was no disciplinary action involved. Um, what they did is they alleged that I was unprofessional with a police officer, and and then they just rolled with it. And uh, sorry, like they, what they did is they they did what I would call an end around. There's a a court case that was settled in the Merit Service Protection Board, I think, which is like this admin kangaroo court the government has for government employees. And it's uh, people can look it up. It was in 1989 and it's called Navy versus Egan. So this guy named Egan uh, argued that the Navy couldn't pull his security clearance, which pulled his paycheck. They couldn't do that because um, he had a property right to his employment. And that's the thing that you get when you're a, a public sector employee. You can actually you have to have due process to remove you from your job. What Navy versus Egan said is that you have no right to a security clearance. The government can revoke it at any time. And should they revoke it or suspend it? you do not have any right to appeal your loss of pay and your indefinite suspension. You're just a guy who doesn't have a security clearance. And if there are no jobs within the, the agency or where you worked that do not uh, require a security clearance, then they don't have to give you any job. Huh. So, so let's say that the FBI had a job that was like a janitor position and they didn't, you didn't need a security clearance. Well, then they could move me to that. But because the FBI has no jobs that don't require top secret clearance, um, which is crazy, by the way, that's just another animal. But like when I was working Indian country crimes, there's no need for a top secret clearance. There's need for a clearance at all. Like it's local crime. Um, it's just on a federal space. So for whatever reason that Navy versus Egan allows them to pull it. So they pulled my security clearance, which means I no longer could be an employee. They didn't get rid of me as an employee. And, and because the minute they would do that, I would be allowed to sue them for the discrimination, right. for, uh, uh, yeah. whistleblower retaliations and so on. So yep. as, an, as a fake employee, like, like they have me sort of in this, this limbo, I'm subjected to uh, what's called like administrative remedies, which means EEO complaints and asking DOJ to investigate. Like DOJ is the hand, FBI is the glove. Right. They're the same, they're the same damn same thing. Same thing. Yeah. So asking if, uh, you know, the FBI or if the DOJ wants to come down and, and, and crush the FBI on anything, it's like, no, where do you think the policies came from? Right. And, and they weren't even policies. They were like advisements. 
this is insane. Yeah. I mean, so basically what you're describing is that the FBI doesn't follow their own policies and procedures, uh, retaliates against people who point out that fact, and is unaccountable to basically anyone because the DOJ, which would ostensibly be the responsible party above the FBI or the president uh, above them, is... Yep aligned with you know whatever it is that they're doing you know this tribal cult like you know it's almost it's very communist in fact the way that they have this sort of power makes right if we can do it it is okay and as long as we run roughshod over people who disagree and control the media then nobody's going to call us on our shenanigans and we we win effectively well look look who does the the prosecution for wrongdoings if the fbi engages in wrongdoing it's going to be doj right so there's a reason uh, and what you're saying is essentially correct i think um i think i i don't have a whole lot of arguments with what, what, you, what you just kind of laid out so when you have a organization that investigates itself essentially and then refers itself for prosecution <laughs> i don't know if it's communist per se but it's the authoritarianism that would go with communism yeah, right, right? yeah so I, I think you're I think that's the only nuance that I would probably correct. It's an authoritarian type aspect when you have there's no outside accountability. It's uh, you guys probably saw the movie um, Watchmen and it's like who watches the watchers right right now. There is not a third party unaccountable entity that, that is not accountable to DOJ that looks at on DOJ, even the office, of the inspector general. They come up with a, uh, you know, a case and they refer it to the FBI and the DOJ for prosecution if they want. The FBI can do administrative remedies. They can, you know, pull pay, suspend, et cetera. And the DOJ theoretically would, would answer for the United States Attorney's Office in that area. And then they would go forward and and uh, and move a case. It's very rare that you see someone who's engaged in like some really blatantly ugly stuff um, get prosecuted. They get to retire, generally speaking, because it's embarrassing. So rather than embarrass the agency and the agency in this case being the FBI, they, uh, they allow it to continue. And... It's just kind of, it's kind of an awful scenario. You know, it's just like, what do yeah, you I, I saw this one article from the New York Post. <laughs> Let's see, I can pull it up here. Uh, it talks about 30 ex-FBI agents, which blew the whistle to expose government's bias. Uh, yeah, so those people, Steve I believe, Friend. are supporting Stephen Friend. Uh, you can right. have to troll through there. But Stephen Friend is a buddy yep. of mine. Here he is, Steve Friend. Um, Steve Friend's a great guy. He is, uh, he's, there's a picture of him with Comey, if you scroll down. If you want to look at something kind of funny, he was told that um, exposing our credentials was a violation of policy. So in order to actually stay within sort of the policy, you'll notice those are blanked out. Oh, yeah. OK. Uh, and he, he did that before he exposed that. So like that picture is not classified. It's not it's not restricted. But the uh, the exposure and photographs of the uh, of the credentials is actually supposedly out of policy. And so, you know, that's what he did. So he's I mean, he's a guy that was trying to work within the system, I think. Um, I got frustrated with the way the system worked earlier than him. He was uh, he was a little late to the party on that. We talked about it, and it's like, you know, he still kind of thought that things were going to go the right way. These thirty uh, former agents are people that I've spoken to. I've you know we've had a Zoom call or two with them, and I got actually a call in another hour or two with them again. Uh, at least members hmm. of that that group, you know, they're disgusted. Nobody nobody wants to see their legacy tattered like this. Nobody yeah, wants yeah. to see the the thing that they spent three decades of their life. You know, some of these guys have, you know, 12 years and it goes 12 to about 30 years. So imagine spending a decade to three decades of your life, putting your name on it and always being on your resume. And now it being associated with something that's that's really doing, you know, kind of an evil compared to what you thought you gave your life to. 
And when they redefine, and I mean, we know this, this is like the game of terms, right? When yeah. they redefine what FBI means, everybody behind the you know thing is retroactively now culpable for those actions. And so it, it destroys the reputation of people who did honorable service. And there's plenty of them. You know, and that's not to say that the FBI didn't have crimes and sins for its whole history, because it did. I mean, anybody yeah. who follows Absolutely. enough of the FBI's history will know that. But um, there's a lot of people that, that served honorably. There's a lot of people that are still serving honorably, and they're watching their reputation just shredded. It's yeah. sad. I mean, for me, it's gut-wrenching, because I'm friends with these guys and, and gals. Yeah, it's like they, with the, I mean, especially with the Twitter files, after seeing all of the government collaboration between FBI, DHS, DOJ, and, and Twitter, and likely now, you know, also Facebook and these other large, you know, Twitter, I think the Twitter files sort of just showed us the tip of the proverbial iceberg where we Agreed. actually got to see the evidence for the first time that we all sort of suspected was happening. We kind of knew that was happening. It's like, all right, it's, now it's verified. It seems, yeah, we well, called yeah. it. But it's, it's to see that happening and now, and, you know, like yourself, like so many others who served honorably, who had the best of intentions, um, who are patriotic Americans, to see that be twisted and turned into this thing that suppresses, you know, our, our, the First Amendment is like the highest. <laughs> there's no higher law in the land. It's like the First Amendment is there. You know, we have an, an ability to critique government policy that is the basis <laughs> of, you know, America, really. You know, the Declaration of Independence was a, was a scathing critique of government. Yeah, that's right. And well, here we are imagine now. Yeah, just imagine, just imagine that. Imagine so that. I, I, uh, there's a woman named Eliza Blue. I don't know enough about yeah, her backstory. We know, Eliza. Know how, we, know, yeah. we know Eliza. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> so Eliza, you know, I, I got into a spaces with her and we've talked and I think we agree on a lot of things. You know, her, regardless of whatever her personal history is, because I saw a couple of journalists trying to pick it apart. It's sort of irrelevant to me because her, her aims are still important. And one of the things that she and I kind of went back and forth on Twitter the other day about was, she said, do you think that the, uh, you know, why did the FBI use their power to censor journalists and free speech when they could have so easily used that same power to uh, to get rid of child pornography on this platform and the distribution and, and the exploitation of children. And I think there's two things that are wrong. Number one, they could have and they didn't. And that would have been a justifiable use of that connection. And two, I'm not sure it even occurred to them. Wow. Imagine how sad that is. Yeah. Because there was a way to use that 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 connection, that power, that, that because it's it's difficult to build rapport with a private company that has all its own aims. And so they did this thing that may have been used for good, and it really could have been, but they were so politically broken, and they're so angry, you know, at the orange man bad theory, and there's a yes. lot of people that live that world. They were so uh, distracted by that, that that took away from what they could have used the ability to, to ask Twitter to do things, you know, on a, on a voluntary basis. They could have used it for good, and yeah. I don't think it ever occurred to them. And that just shows you, like, it doesn't have to be everybody that's a partisan hack. It shows you that just enough of them are that everything is very dangerous. Yeah. Um, so yeah. The, the old, that, it's, it's not even like so much that they were deliberately not trying to look into that or covering it up. It's just, it, like you said, it didn't even occur to them to think along those lines because they is. have this or they have this sort of tunnel vision sucked up into the whole political narrative of, well, no, you know, we got to protect the country from these radical Republican conservative fascists and this and this and that. And it's like the kids, uh, who are being uh, hunted by predators and all that stuff doesn't even occur. Like doesn't even nope. cross their minds. No, it yeah. doesn't. I, I don't think it does. And I, and for me, that's that's a massive indictment of, of what yeah. they were about. It's just like how do, how do we go? How do you put your trust in an organization that doesn't even think the right things first? Even if it was doing things that were wrong, um, shouldn't its original focus be just like something we can all agree on? Like we are in a very divided nation right now. 
you know, one in two people don't agree with each other politically. And it's not so much that they don't agree on policy. It's like they think the other side is evil. Yes. And there's some of this action that I, I would say is demonstrably evil. And I'm a very pro-life kind of guy. And uh, and that's, that's you know, newish in my life, I would say. Like, I didn't feel very strongly about it for a long time. But I got three children and um, I've watched the technology evolve. And so that when I was born, you know, like they heard a fetal heartbeat at whatever time, you know, 20 or 25 weeks. And they didn't have the ultrasound technology in the same way in the, in the early eighties or late seventies, that wasn't a thing. And, and so as the, the road decision, you know, moves forward, we've had the medical information to know much more about embryology and about, um, you know, just fetal development and all the things that we know now. And, you know, at seven weeks, this is like, you know, your, your spouse misses their first period. And then now you can hear the heartbeat of your child. That's a, yeah. that's a big change from when that decision was made. And so I, you know, I think it was a bad decision just on the legality of it from everything I can read, but moreover, you know, so many things in this, this world have changed when it comes to the amount of technology we have and looking down the pipe of this stuff. So I think it's a, an actual evil to kill people. I don't think that we would feel good about like a vegetable laying in a, you know, on an intubated you know situation where they're on a, a pump that's scrubbing because their kidneys failed. You couldn't just go up and stab that person in the, in the heart. Yeah. Like we would all know that was a murder. And so yeah. that person is every bit as dependent as a, as a baby is prior to being born. So we look at that. I think that's actual evil. And then if you tell me that I, uh, you know, me, like, I, I'm not going to say that a man is a woman and a woman isn't you know, a man. Like these yes. things are, that's not real. It's not real. Medically, I have to treat you very specifically. Like if you are a female and you have a uterus, then, you know, I don't, it doesn't matter if you're wearing jeans and a tie. Like, I don't give a shit. Like, that's irrelevant. It's yeah, totally irrelevant. We, like, we, I need to talk. know if you're pregnant. Are you possibly pregnant when we're, yeah. when we're treating abdominal pain? Like, it's a differential diagnosis question. Yep. So Absolutely. the idea that we're going to just affirm somebody else's subjective view of reality is crazy to me. And it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be compassionately treated. They're human beings. Of course. Like, yeah. two things can be true at once. But you don't get to tell me that I have to believe in you're crazy. Um, in fact, I feel really bad for you and I kind of want to help you get out of that crazy because it doesn't seem like a good thing and the outcomes are 50-50 really, really bad. So Agreed. let's say- we, know, We've spoken to three detransitioners on the podcast already and the whole gender ideology stuff is a subject that we take very seriously and we discuss a lot, um, particularly as gay men because it's, it's creating a lot of backlash against us. People are sure. lumping us all together with this stuff as if all of us agree with this when we don't. And it's even if it's even more severe than that, because not only is it erasing, um, you know, women's rights, right? Because you need to be able to distinguish biological sex to even have women's rights. It's erasing same-sex rights too, same-sex attraction rights. Yeah, so, you can't you can't look at these things and say that they're analogous. I think Dave Chappelle did a pretty good uh, take on yes. this. I mean, he, he's he's great about it. But it's like, how are you going to tell me that there's such a thing as same-sex attraction when we can't even agree that there is uh, such a thing as sex. Yes, exactly. So if you're going to, if you're going to erase those lines and you know, I grew like the guy that uh, was born in the hospital bed right next to me kind of thing was, became one of my best friends growing up as a kid. Um, you know, he might have like the most uh, prominently gay job in the history of the world. He was the lead male, uh, you know, ballet dancer in the San Francisco ballet. I don't think there's anything gayer than that. Like, <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's like, it's just, the, that's just what it is. You know, and I grew up in yeah. the Bay area for a number of years in, in San Francisco. And so, you know, who, who cares? He always had the cutest girlfriends when we were in high school. He, you know, had sleepovers with them. And, the, and it was very obvious at a young age to his family that that was the case, that he was gay. And that was what he was interested in. It doesn't matter. Like he's a good guy. He was a nice person. Um, none of those things had any bearing on, you know, whether he was a, a decent human being. But if he had told me that he was like a, you know, like a carrot, <laughs> or, 
Or if he wanted to wear a puppy mask, I think we all would have had a problem because he yeah, wasn't a puppy. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> We'd ask some questions. Yeah. Like, and, and, and there's, you know, I've, there's, there's certain things in, in the, and I don't think there's a gay community. I, I, that's not my experience. Like I there know is gay not. people. There is not. There are, no. there are gay men that agree with each other. There are gay men that don't agree with each other. I've got someone that follows me that works for the FBI that I don't want to say anything about him, but you know, he's a, um, he's a, 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 a gay employee that uh, is a very, very staunch conservative. And yeah. for all the reasons that probably people think that way, you know, I'm not even, I don't, I don't even think I'm that staunch of a conservative. I'm just sort of like a libertarian. I just want people to be yeah. able to do their own thing. Just don't bring it into my house. If I ask you not to teach my kids about stuff, then it doesn't matter what I don't want you teaching them about. I don't want you teaching them about car parts right now because they're too, they're too foolish. They're, they're childs. They, they shouldn't get underneath an engine and start messing around with it. Like they also shouldn't learn things about sexuality. And my children have told me, you know, they had a, um, they had a, like a, a stuffed animal. And when we first had it, it was a monkey. And the monkey was a boy monkey, apparently, because that was the only monkey I could conceive of. I didn't ever consider a girl monkey. I don't know why. It's just a monkey. It's a stuffed animal. You sexist. And when, yeah. And then when, when, when my, uh, when my three-year-old started saying, well, she's actually a girl. And I said, well, <laughs> Well, what's her name? And she's like, it's still monkey. Her name is still monkey. Her name's still monkey. I, yeah, she's just she's a girl monkey. That's because I'm a girl and I want to have a girl monkey. And it's like, all right, I can do with that. And someone gave me this weird thing where they go, well, is it a trans monkey? And it's like, are you out of your flipping mind? She's a three-year-old. No, she just realized that she's a girl and her companion is a girl. Right. So it's, there's nothing to it. Like, why are we adding this layer of insanity on top of what is such a natural, <laughs> just a natural childish thing to to you know, figure out what boys and girls are about. And they, and they sit there and, and then you get like a four-year-old or a five-year-old telling you, and they, and they know they're like, you know, that's my brother and he's a boy and he's like you and the dog is a girl and she's like me. It's like, well, yeah, sure. Sure enough. Yeah. It's just not, it's not that hard, but when we're going to go out there and persecute people for those things, if we're going to send the FBI because you have a different, you know, political belief, holy mm. crap, like yeah. we're screwed. Shit um, has gotten crazier and crazier i wanted to go back a bit to you know you were talking about the whole abortion thing and i think one of the other reasons that a lot of people like us have started to reconsider the abortion question also is the rhetoric from the democrat lefty side has very much shifted it's post-birth abortions it, was what did right. it for me well, i was right. i was let the woman choose until i heard well, about that what i was going to say is now the position seems to be less pro-choice and has turned into pro-abortion it's not so Correct. much about oh it's about the choice now no it's not actually like we're celebrating this abortion right. this is a killing it's and a sacrament. It used to be, you know, yes. safe, legal, and rare was the standard right. when Roe passed. Yeah. And it is not rare anymore. No. It's become a regular, routine use of birth control. I think it was something like 90% of the women when asked, you know, why are you having this abortion? It's just birth control. You know, they don't have a specific reason. They're just, you know, they're just having the abortion because they don't want the baby. And right. that just blows my mind. It's like, lady, like, you know how you get pregnant. Like we all know how you get pregnant. It's not like surprise, you yeah. know, you, you, you took, you took certain actions. There was a result that followed that. And now what you're doing is, and they don't like when we say it this way, but it is what you're doing. You are sacrificing that life mm -hmm. in you that's Look, developing to have a different life that you very Mayan, prefer. if you ask me. Well, <laughs> so, sure. I mean, it's, it's like a Aztec secular rather. religion in a lot of ways. Yeah. Here's, here's something that you have to consider. There is nothing scarier in the world when you are not a parent to knowing that you're going to become a parent. Like it is, it's terrifying sure. on a lot of levels. It's also incredible. It's one of the most special opportunities that we get. And it's one of the things that I, I actually, you know, it's one of the sort of, I don't want to say pity, but I, I, I feel sad that gay men do not get to have that sort of 
experience and gay women as well. It, it's, it's not. Diffi it's difficult, man. It really is, and it's something now in it's, my thirties. Now in my thirties, it's something that I've really been having to contend with more and it's upsetting, you know, and I tell other people I know who are parents and stuff, I'm like, don't take that for granted. You know, that's a very important part of your life probably is going to be the most important part of your life. It is. And here's, so. here's what I'll describe. Cause this is, it's almost impossible to, to fathom this. Okay. Um, like I barely remember my life when I didn't have kids. My, my wife and I laugh about stuff. She was like, Hey, do you remember when we went to key bar when we were dating? And I go, yeah. And she goes, what do we do with Olivia? It's like, <laughs> He wasn't born yet, but, um, <laughs> but it's almost impossible to, to go back before yeah. that time because it's such a hard break. And so here's the way I would just, I describe it to my brother this way. Cause he's married, um, doesn't have kids, doesn't want to have kids. So be it. And his wife just never wanted to have children and, and he doesn't want to either. And he said, you know, my life is good without him. Don't try to convince me otherwise. And I was like, I won't because we're not talking about the same experience. And here's what I'll say. If you are married and you don't have children, you're like in a, you're on a freeway. And you're in a car, doesn't matter. Everybody has different cars, right? Some people are driving a Toyota Tercel, some people are driving a Ferrari. You got a different amount of money, you can go different speeds. Everybody's kind of going somewhere, but you're all kind of on this path. Everyone's getting older, you're going down the line, you're driving over the road. There's some bumps, whatever. Okay. The minute that you decide that you're having children and you find out, like, hey, mama's pregnant, you take whatever car you're in, you turn hard and hard and right off this highway, and you enter a cornfield. <laughs> And you are driving now off-road with no idea what's coming up. And like corn's hitting the windshield and there might be a fence down there and you could go into a canyon. Like it is a complete yeah. different experience. You're still driving a car. That's the marriage. That's the, that's the relationship. But everything is all bets are off. It's just a total deep. Like we cannot compare the experience. Yeah. And I, I, I and think I, I just saying like it's scary. Um, I, I also like, I, th I think this is why there is so much uh, Peter Pan syndrome uh, within the gay community amongst gay men, especially, you know, aside from, you know, men just being more sexual, you mm -hmm. throw a whole bunch of them together. They're less likely to say no to that. So they, you know, they fall into promiscuity, <laughs> they fall into drug use. And yes, yep. there's trauma and stuff tied into that as well. But a huge part of it is not having that experience of being thrust into the cornfield which forces many people especially men to have to get their shit together to become responsible to practice discipline to stop being a slut to stop partying all that yep. stuff i'm not 100%. saying they all i'm not saying they all rise to the occasion we know there are plenty of deadbeat fathers out there That's but correct. i i know many people in my own life who didn't know what was going on. They very much were aimless, you know, in their own lives and stuff. And then once that kid came out and they saw it, like something clicked, they changed the way they viewed everything. They got yeah. their shit together. And yeah. uh, gay men do not have that experience. Thrust they don't have them. to. So yeah. there's something that Jordan Peterson said. I know when you had a, um, like a Jordan Love Peterson him. meme. And, and he said something along the lines of all human existence is suffering. And the only way that it makes any sense or that you're able to assign any meaning to that suffering is to find the heaviest burden that you can as a and man. And lift it. Yes. And lift it and, and hoist, hoist that burden. And for most of us, that's children. And it's many yeah. children as we can handle. And usually maybe maybe potentially one more than you can would be even great. Because you'll, you'll, you'll either rise the occasion or you will valiantly strive and, and assign meaning to the suffering of humanity. Um, it's funny what you said about the Peter Pan syndrome. I, I had a funny conversation with one of my buddies, prior Marine, um, FBI agent. And he goes, you know, why, why was the first, uh, what was it? COVID case or uh, no. So a, there was a monkeypox case in France of a dog. And they were like, we co-sleep with our wine reiner or whatever it was. And you're like, oh my God. Uh, and this is more or less sexually transmitted. And so you're looking at it and you're going, they're not saying it, but like, I think that these dudes are messing around with the dog 
And so my buddy goes, how does someone get to that point? And I go, I know exactly how they get to that point. One, I've had a number of friends who were gay. Um, two, you know, what's funny is, I, I mean, I went to, I used to go to drag shows when I was 18, 19 years old with a guy on my, my floor. He was yeah. terrified of coming out. He was terrified of going to the show. I mean, and there's no way to call it not a sexual fetish. It is a sexual fetish, but he wanted to be involved in it. We were really supportive of him because you're 18. If you're not like a little bit, you know, um, open-minded and, and, and have kind of a liberal heart at that point, like you're probably, uh, you're probably awful. So, <laughs> I mean, or you've just seen what's going on in this world. I think in this case, I, I, the world that they're living in is different than what I lived in 20 something years ago, 24 years True. ago. So long and short is, you know, uh, this guy, Matt, he wanted to go and dance and he had a, he had a name and he had a costume and it was hideous and, and he was terrible. Um, but you know, he was 18 and he was struggling to figure out what the hell was going on in his life. And it's like, fine. Yeah. We were supportive of that. The reason that you get, uh, the difference of like some of the Peter Pan syndrome and how you end up like banging your dog and giving the monkey pox, I think is that you talked about the sexual drive of men. I think that's two gas pedals and no break. Yeah. Right. There's yeah. consequences that come from, from sexual activity with women. We always used to knew that. And the consequences are babies and or whatever else goes down. But a lot of it is like babies is a real life-changing experience, as I just kind of said. And if you don't have that as a possibility of the outcome, you know, two gas pedals, no break. What the hell? Let's go. And so I, I kind of used to see that with, you know, people. I'm pretty sure that uh, Joe Exotic took a pass at me, by the way, just randomly. Um, <laughs> so random. <laughs> it's so random. But like he was, on the, he was in the Oklahoma City gay scene at that time. Yeah, and it, and if you watch the Tiger King, you'll find that he was uh, running around and making these things. And he said something really specific, and I have this like mediocre memory of it being. In a, if it wasn't him, it was like someone else was using his pickup line. Right, so, funny. It, it's so strange because when yeah. I watched that that episode, I was like, I told my wife, I was like, Oh my god, I think that dude took a pass at me once, and she was like, Why? Where? You know, man, Oklahoma City had a real wild because uh, they were the only city for a lot of you know many hours in all directions. Right. And so, you know, gay men would go there for the anonymous nature of being able to, to, you know, be around other gay men and they would go and, and hang out with each other. And there was all these like weird, like motel parties that were all sketchy looking. I remember walking by and like, they would leave the doors open and you'd just be like, it's like watching a horror show when you're 18. Cause number one, you know, I, I, I hadn't lost my virginity and I'm walking through and I'm looking over at this thing and I'm, oh God. I'm just seeing just wild, wild stuff. I remember yeah. looking in and you see two men standing in like underwear and a boa constrictor between the two of them. And you're like, what in the shit? Like, yeah. there's no other way to see it. And so that was kind of eye opening. And this is in the middle of the Midwest. Um, <laughs> so it, it's kind of funny. Like you, you come to the path where you are in your life. And it's not that I just didn't experience any life or see other things going on. It's like, I'm, I'm not angry at any of those guys. I don't know what the hell they were doing. Um, I worry about the snake a little bit, but um, <laughs> you know, everybody's got to live the life that's most for them. I don't think most people find the most fulfilling life without a spirituality, without a higher power, without God Agreed. giving them direction. Agreed. So there is, and there's a kind of a godless nature in a lot of what some homosexual men choose to do, but that's not all, you know, there's some really lovely people out there that have, that are very God focused. And I have friends who were priests that came out as gay afterwards and now live with men. So, you know, I've, I've seen the whole gamut of all of it. And it's very wild to think that somehow the abortion rights issue has tied in to the gay issue in this country. I don't see how they're related because there's a very real chance in, you know, probably in my lifetime, but certainly before my lifetime, that if people were able to diagnose that they were going to have a gay son or daughter, they might have aborted that, that baby for the True. life that would have been so difficult for them. I think that is as a compelling an argument as any. That, that abortion, you know, in the in the case of discomfort or even even in the sense of Down syndrome, like when you're a parent, you, you have to look down the, the 
you know, the genetic screenings. And for my first daughter, you're like, of course, yeah, we're going to have that because they tell you to have it. And on my second daughter, um, they asked us like, you know, do you want to get the screening? And we're like, why? Well, what would it be the upside? And they said, well, you know what you're going to have. And like, if you might have difficulties and they said, are you going to, you know, are you going to make a decision based on that information? It's like, no, I'm not. Yeah. We're going to know that we're going to be facing some challenges, uh, but no, I'm not. So we didn't do it. And we didn't do it on my son either. We didn't get the screenings, but I, I honestly like the idea that not too long ago, being a gay man or woman in this country was a very, very difficult prospect to look down. I think it's significantly better at this point than it, than it was. Um, but it's a, uh, it's scary to think that people may have made choices abortion wise um, related to that. So I don't know. It's just, I, I just feel like it's not the boat that it's not the, uh, the thing that you should be hitching your wagon up to because these are very different issues like equality, um, treating people equally. I'm hundred percent on board. Like I said, discrimination is not my thing. It doesn't matter who you are. I don't want to discriminate against Nazis. I don't want to hang out with them either, but like yeah. I, I, they, they should be allowed to have their crappy ideas and we should be able to debunk them in public. Yeah. And, Agreed. and, and we've gotten to this point where we're just talking past each other so often that this country doesn't want to have that, that engagement where it's like, look, we don't have to agree. We used to all agree that America was great. Like we used to all agree like this was good and we disagreed on how to make it better. And now we don't even agree that this is good. I love your yeah. backdrop, by the way. Yeah, yeah well, like, you, you figured. Like, yeah. Brent's, like I, live in, I live in America. Yeah. Well, like Brent's shirt says, you know, I like America. And Shout out yeah. to George Alexopoulos. He, he gets looks even for that shirt. And this is dirty kind, looks. This on is the kind of New York City. This is where a lot of those people are on the moderate or not so much moderate, but like, you know, the Democrat and the radical, radical left side. It's like, it's not only are you not allowed to love America, you're not even allowed to like it. Not even a little. You bit. are required. I know to it's funny because it, it's such a gentle statement. It's, yeah. um, it's so, it's so non-offensive. <laughs> it's so innocuous. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's definitely it designed to, uh, to trick people though, with the red and the white lettering. And you know what that's supposed to remind folks of, which clearly, is even but, sadder, right? Like who yeah. cares? That's the thing. Um, and, you know, I had somebody tell me the other day when we were in a conversation, he's like, we're having a conversation on the phone and he goes, just for your information, you know, I'm not a, um, I'm not a Trump supporter. And I said, that's fair. Like, I don't, I don't really care. I wasn't, I wasn't for Trump 1.0, you know, in 2016, I was, uh, I was behind Gary Johnson. And so this is not a political battle that I've gotten involved in. I, I don't think, I think the battle is, is when you weaponize your, your apparatus of government against any of the population. We are in a yeah. really dangerous time. And the FBI kind of has always done some weaponization. It's always been kind of dangerous. It's a, it's like the ring of power, like nobody can really wield it. And so it shouldn't be wielded by anybody politically. Yeah. And the minute you start involving it, like you get things like, uh, you know, we, the FBI used to hunt commies and, and reds. And like, to be fair, like those people actually have a right to exist in this country and they're, they're entitled to whatever their ideas are. I just disagree with them. We should be able to have that conversation with them. They shouldn't go to jail for it. And they shouldn't have the FBI out there running, you know, running, a, you know, discrediting and smear campaigns on them because that's really scary because the tools the FBI has are very powerful. Um, doesn't mean they're always wielded very intelligently. There's a, a plenty of them that are not wielded well, but um, yeah. they are powerful. Well, now that now that we're back in the subject of the FBI, one of the other things yeah. I wanted to, to ask about was the the targeting of right wing groups and the mm -hmm. monitoring of, of these groups and how that was being done. And this is one of the things you, you blew the whistle on. Maybe talk a bit about that, you know, certain symbols that were being identified, how these groups are being tracked or labeled and right. the fact that it was definitely a bias leaning toward conservative groups. Yeah. I think the, uh, I think the issue is that the FBI, uh, this is kind of my contention. The FBI considers itself an intelligence agency first. It's law enforcement second. 
Okay. And when you make that distinction, it helps explain the rest of it. Intelligence agencies thrive on information. They need information. They're like a, a pump that's constantly trying to draw information. And then the output is supposed to be analysis. So um, there's, a, there's a concept of raw intelligence. That's like you and I had a conversation and we have a tape of it. That's raw intelligence. But what that means is the analyzed intelligence. Okay, that's the finished product. And so what I saw were some finished products that were overtly left-leaning and um, also probably violations of the First Amendment from the way that the FBI was pushing it out. So uh -huh. one of them was the uh, the militia violent extremist sheet. This was something that uh, Ted Cruz got and he banged his boot up on, was yelling at Chris Ray about it in, in a Senate right. hearing. And, you know, what it said was, is a couple of things, but it said that, uh, you know, our Gazden flag and our Gonzalez battle flag and the Betsy Ross flag and warrior or culture. Extremist and other, like, symbols. Yeah. We're all yeah, militia violent extremists. <laughs> and so how do you get there? Well, you get some sort of leftist bent an uh, analysis or analytical product and that comes from someone who has that sort of mindset to begin with. So I think when the FBI started going towards intelligence and analysis more than it did law enforcement as a, as a primary goal, you get a lot of people that spend tons of time in university. Um, you know, they have uh, master's degrees, they have PhDs, and they have an ideological bent that is associated with the, the academic culture. Yeah. And so when you have those people, and that's left-leaning culture, that's just, you know, there's no real debate about it. So when you have those people that are making the uh, intelligence piece, they are drawing the focus. And the way that the Bureau does enforcement actions, any, anything outside of like real specific criminal, you know, um, areas, but anything that's on the counterterrorism and, and on the counterintelligence side, those are, uh, you know, sort of laid out. The priorities are laid out by intelligence people. And so if those people are left leaning, then they are going to move that needle to the left. And then more and more of those people keep getting, um, they keep getting uh, promoted. And so that gives you even a, uh, you know, even a nastier version of it. Give me one second. I'm going to just... That's okay. Positive feedback. It sounds like, you know, the more lefties that come in, the That's more right. lefties they recruit, the yeah. more that people who are neutral or, or conservative leave because they feel excluded. Yeah. It's actually something that Lobachevsky talked about in political ponerology is that as an organization gets more corrupt over time, the people who have a good heart, have honorable intentions are the first to leave. Yeah. And, and then Correct. more of those sort of, you know, influence end up taking their place. And then over time, it gets to where we have it now, where we have this highly yeah, we're actually purging them. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we're actively, problems. yeah, we're in the moving, moving people out phase at this point. Like that's what's happening. Yeah. And so what, what you're dealing with is, um, and it's, and I think it's a, an interesting moment for us uh, just politically and socially, because when we saw the COVID lockdowns that happened in 2020 and the reaction that the federal government took, um, and then we're seeing now even the censorship that was going on at Twitter and some of these things that, that that's being exposed. You know, we got a um, we got to see the jump. Usually, it's very incremental. Yeah, and it went so fast and so it was so obvious. There was no sleight of hand involved when that happened. So usually, that that shift is kind of gradual. And I think what we're seeing is, uh, you know, leftists and, and people that sort of associate with the sort of totalitarianism. You know, they overplayed the hand. And so it's very visible to us. Typically, we're talking about the frog in the boiling water. You turn the water up and the frog doesn't notice. A lot of the frogs noticed. And then we're dropping some other frogs in that, that are like, oh, that's hot right away. That's Steve Friend for you. You know, I, I kind of got to come up in counterterrorism or counterintelligence. And then I moved to counterterrorism. And so my surveillance squad did a lot of that work from, you know, I saw it from 20, late 2016 all the way until 2021. And then I went to a criminal job and I was like, now nah, I'm out of it. I'm done. And then they came for us again and they were like, you, you have to swab, you have to take the shot. 
we don't care about your religious exemption. We're not going to, um, we're not even going to process it. They didn't process any of them as far as wow. I can tell. If they did, it was so few. You know, they got thousands of a religious accommodation requests, which is to say, I have a religious belief. I'm not going to do this thing. Do whatever you want. But if I can be accommodated, they have to federally, like they're federally mandated under under um, the Code of Federal Regulations and, and the, the Equal Opportunity Statutes, that they have to actually go and individually analyze whether each person can be accommodated. And in my case, I got to see it. I mean, this will be really fun whenever we get a chance to do some, some um, court case type work. But I put in an accommodation request on the 9th. The letter denying it was drafted on the 10th and it referred to the findings, right? The findings are what you have to base it on. The findings letter was written on the 14th mm. and, the, and the letter on the 10th wasn't even by name. It denied me, but it said your medical slash religious accommodation request has been denied without my name on it, without any circumstances or individual aspect. So it's boilerplate. Wow. So I put in a request. They denied it the same day. This is the deputy assistant director of human resources. This is a pretty high up person in the, in the, you know, the swampy part of the FBI on the seventh floor. So, right. and then they refer to the office of reasonable accommodation who had a finding letter and that was dated several days later. So the guy's either a prophet or it's a foregone conclusion. Either way, it's pretty uncomfortable. And so we just know it's, it's garbage. It's just, that's the nature of how it worked. Yeah. They're and, not following their own policies and procedures. No, exactly. Yeah. So once that starts happening, yeah, they're going to push some people out. Yeah. There's going to be some people that fight internally. I know people that are leaving, um, you know, friends that can retire. The FBI is going to have a retirement problem because a number of people, who came in 20 something years ago, the world was different. Right, and yeah. they're still trying to be in that world and that world doesn't exist in the FBI at the moment. So we're, you know, the course correction is very difficult to, to, to straighten. So you mentioned this earlier, <clears throat> but do, do you think the Bureau should be dissolved? I do, yeah. You do. I think the brand is so tarnished at this point, I don't think anybody's gonna be able to look at it in a fair way. And moreover, this is the more important question. The FBI just got an $11.3 trillion budget for this coming Ooh. year. Wow. Okay. They were in the high nines before it was like 9.7. So Damn. almost $10 billion. Now we're over 11. So the question is this, number one, what is the American people? What are the American people getting for that $11 right. billion? Okay. What's the tangible outcomes? Yeah. And then more importantly, the FBI was created to solve certain specific problems and those problems do not exist today. Mm. So <laughs> if we were going to look at the problems that exist today, we would be looking at a very different problem set and the FBI has created, has adapted and kind of created its own mission, but the mission that it was created for doesn't exist. So I think that's the real question. It's like, what are we getting for $11 billion? And would we use our $11 billion the same way if there was no FBI? Because we have a lot of overlap. I mean, DEA is out there running down drugs, ATF so is out there shooting <laughs> people's dogs and, you know, violating the constitution and trying to take people's guns that are- That's the other thing. Owners. Blows my mind about the just the sheer number of three-letter federal agencies that we have across the board. There are some that like people haven't even heard of. Like I just found out about the DIA and the, I the DIA has six times the budget of the CIA. Wow, <laughs> damn! And like we could, I mean, the CIA and their like their history and the things that they have done, you know, shady across the board, just clear violations of international law. There's, there's yeah, the problem with the CIA and is, this stuff. Yeah. The CIA has some really great people too. I mean, a lot of Patriots join the CIA. I, I threw an application in there as well. I think the danger is, is that, the, you know, there's, there's some that can be attributed to malice and malfeasance and some that can be attributed to some ignorance and some failure of just yeah. um, being able to predict the future. So I'll give you the example. It's like you go in and you say, well, 
we're looking at film, you know, country A has dictator X. Dictator X is a problem. He's anti-American. He's, you know, genocide, whatever. Well, it's like a doctor going in and looking at one single lab value and deciding to treat the lab value instead of the entire patient. Mm -hmm. So you go and you get rid of dictator X, let's say. Well, now you've pushed in, but where does it pop out? It pops out four other areas. There's a power vacuum. You're like, oh crap, power vacuums are a thing. Um, who do we leave in charge? Like these militia groups that didn't really align with us, but they were helping us. And now they've got all our weapons. And now they also know like what we do in their country. And they know all of our sources that are running around. So they kill off all the CIA contacts. And now, we don't, now we're blind in a country with a group of people that we empowered that are garbage. And you go like, uh, well, that didn't work out well. And then we just do it again. And then we try something else. And they do and it again, a better the next time. And again, right? And again, I mean, yeah, and exactly. Ukraine, so all these going back into 2014, the CIA was involved there. Nobody talks sure. about that. Oh, no. And we're still dealing with the fallout. Hundreds, billions sure. dollars to Ukraine, thanks to Joe Biden. I mean, this is just, we're, we're, we're in cuckoo bananas town. We're in, you know, total, like, off the rails here. And yeah. I, I, I honestly don't know if the country will survive. You know, we there's just been so much corruption and so much malfeasance at these upper echelons and in intelligence agencies and in the executive branch and Congress. It's like we are in deep, deep trouble. Well, I and mean, if, yeah. if if we give up, it definitely won't survive. And this is why, you know, I do right. I do agree with James O'Keefe and his message that he was very much trying to get across at the America Fest event is like we we need to stand up and say something, we need to stick right. together. People need to blow the whistle, they need to be brave, you're not alone. And that was the point of bringing all those people on the stage is to show you like, look, you're not alone. There are there are other people here doing the same thing. So it's like, it, if you're involved in one of these organizations and you see something that is clearly unconstitutional, is clearly against the values that the country was founded on, you need to say something, you know, yeah. and you yeah. might you might put yourself at risk. You might put your job at risk. It's it's going to be a hard road to go down. But what's what's worse, you know, dealing with that immediate consequence of that or the long term consequences of continuing down the road that we're going down as a country and what's going to happen as a result of it. So, so that's in some ways that's easier said than done. And some yes, ways it's absolutely. So I totally understand. Trust me. I mean, I'm, I'm living proof of that right now. So exactly. It's been a difficult, yeah. uh, you know, several months, difficult year or so. But what I will say is that uh, a lot of people, you know, people are good at following orders and they're good at following protocols. People are not necessarily good at critical and, and creative thinking, which is what, yeah. kind of one of the things where we're at right now. So I, I propose the following. If you want to know the path, the game plan, this is Kyle's soapbox a little bit here, but if you want to know how do you go about doing the thing you just said, you know, blowing the whistle is not a one-step process. There's a lot of evaluations that go on and, and there's a lot of, you know, individual personal, um, you know, soul searching that has to be done and so on. Yeah. So here's where I, this is kind of what the purpose of my speech was. Um, cause James asked me to make it help hopeful. Uh, it's very easy to be not hopeful. Actually, I got into it with somebody on true social today. They were, um, you know, mad at Seb Gorka, who, by the way, I, I just had to text him back. Cause he was like, Hey man, are you going to do my interview? So that's, that's such a weird thing in the world. When like Dr. Gorka is over here, like yeah. texting you and you're like, sorry, bro. Uh, um, <laughs> so yeah. So, I mean, he, he said something that anybody who's ready to give up the fight is un-American and he's an immigrant to this country. Right. And so there's something to be said about people who are immigrants to this country having a level of hope that is not the same as people that are naturally born here. We look at it, we're like, ah, oh, it's all sucks. And then we give up. Well, some people had to fight to become citizens of this country. They had to fight to get here. They had to go through some difficulty. They picked up their family and moved to a foreign place. So I would encourage the following. And uh, maybe this is a, a good wrap up thought is yeah. that if you want to 
if you want to see the country do the thing that we're talking about, which is be a place of honor, be a place of people who disagree on policy, but, but agree on the value of America, then I encourage everybody to look down right now and draw a line in the sand where it needs to be. You need to figure out what you're not going to backpedal beyond right now. It's like, I'm not going to let my kids get COVID shots, whatever that is. I'm not going to let my kids attend, um, you know, what is it called? The uh, drag cream story hour. Drag if shows, they, yeah. if they bring that, if they bring that shit to my school, it's over. Like I'm yep. going to write the line in the sand right now. And that's where I'm at. You need to know what those things are before they come to you. There's a concept in law enforcement that if somebody draws a gun on you and tries to shoot you and you're going to try to like quick draw them out, you die. It's called action beats reaction. It's proved out every single time. If I have a weapon pointed at you, like a, like a SIM gun, we've done these uh, simulations all the time at the FBI Academy. I point like a SIM gun right at you. Okay. And then you look at me and I can't shoot until you move and you draw your gun. You'll shoot me faster from a draw if I got my gun on you. But if I decide to shoot you like that, I have the action. Whoever makes the, the choice wins. Okay. Right. And so you make the choice early that these are the things that I'm going to do so that when they trigger your action, you've already decided the action. You just implement it. Your execution is all you're waiting on. The decision has been made. The line has been drawn. The, uh, you know, whatever the next course of action and all you're waiting on is like a trigger for execution. There's a guy named Jeff Cooper, who was the father of modern handgun fighting for whatever it's worth. And uh, he was a, um, like a Green Beret and a total stud. People can look up Jeff Cooper's laws <laughs> of awareness. And um, he talks about the colors of awareness and what they mean. If you're in the white, which means you're just a sheep walking in the world, you die. If you're in the yellow, that means you're aware that there's danger, but it's not imminent. If you're in the orange, you're aware that there's imminent danger and you're waiting for a trigger to move you into the red. And the red is like full action, full send. Things are going to happen right now. And you can look at that in your social life and your and your your spiritual existence right now. And we should all be living between the yellow and the orange, depending on where we are. When we leave our house, we should probably be in the orange. You should be waiting for that action to move you forward. And a, a lot of ways, like the way that your, your posture is, needs to be yellow to orange. If you live in the red, you burn out, you go crazy. You, 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 you can't live in the red forever. And if you're in the black, that means you're totally overwhelmed by circumstances and you're going to die too. Black yeah. is as bad as, as white in this case. Nihilism. So, yeah. So if people can go and look into these, these, these kind of colors <laughs> of awareness, Jeff Cooper had a lot of it. This was all about physical combat, but we're in a, like an emotional and a spiritual combat right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So draw that line, know what it is that you will not backpedal beyond and then don't under any circumstances and know that there's going to be some hardship. There's going to be some, some heartbreak. You're going to be, you know, selling your home and doing whatever it is. That, and you're going to have to go do things that are, that are going to be the next thing, but build those contingencies financially. Um, you know, friends that know that, Hey, this is my line and I'm not going to cross it. I may be leaning on you and I need your support. If we don't go and establish those connections early, you're setting yourself up to, to fail. In the speech, speech, I said, I got a buddy, he's from Long Island. So you guys will recognize this kind of attitude, but he's like, you know, you got two options. You can prepare or you can repair. I firmly believe in that. It's about all the yeah. things. It's about your your house. You know, you can um, you can have your house, uh, you know, clean and ready, and you can always have guests over at any time, or you can realize guests are coming over, and you got to run around and throw everything underneath the bed and kick into the closet. Right? That's your repair. It's less good. It's less prepared. It's less um, it's less forward thinking, and we need to be forward thinking. So same thing with a car. Uh, which is probably not a thing you guys are dealing with in Manhattan as much, but somebody's no. got to go out there and repair the damn thing. He's they got to make, you got to make sure that your car is repaired. You got to change the oil on it. You got to make sure your tires are good. You got to make sure there's yeah. air in the tires. Otherwise you have a blowout and now you got to fix it in an emergency. So if you want to avoid the emergency thinking, that panic sensation, you do it by deciding what your, your, your triggered actions will be, what you're ready to execute and do them well in advance. So then when it comes to you, it's like, Oh, you're going to do thing. A, I already have plan B and C. I'm going to go do those. I'm yeah. not doing this anymore.
So that's my, that's my encouragement to people. That's how you get hope. Um, some of that is through prayer. Some of that is through friendship. Some of that is through, you know, making these connections to other human beings that have the same feeling and knowing you're not alone, but we got to do it. We really have to, because otherwise I think this country all, all of those, I think matter, prayer connections. And yeah, we, we very much had to do that to, to do this show. We and had for, to draw those lines and say, um, are we going to go all in this or not? You know, are we going to back down or not? And we decided we're not, we're not backing down on standing up against the lockdowns and the mandates. We were very outspoken about all of that stuff. Lost yeah. a lot of people. In There's our a lives. video of Daniel screaming into a megaphone yeah. shirtless on the roof in the, of our apartment building. Yeah. Well, <laughs> About now, well, now you have to give background to that, Brent. So like at 7 p.m. every day during the lockdowns, they had people coming out and clapping and making noise and banging pants for the healthcare workers and the essential workers and all this stuff. And after a while, we just got sick of After shit. months. We were like, yeah, no, we were just, maybe like a month or so, we were just like, all right, you know, if you're going to go out and make noise, we're going to go out and make noise. So we went up right. there with a megaphone and we started saying like, what are we doing? This is insane. We need to open the economy <laughs> up. We are shooting ourselves in the foot right now. We are. We, we play right into China's hands. So. Yes. Yeah. So it's like we drew those lines pretty damn early. And yes, you 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 might pay it. You're probably you're going to pay a cost. There's, There's a price, another you know? another saying too that I, I read a while ago. It's no methods of attack. So it's no how they come after you or how they will come after you. That's um, know how to defend against them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and be, well, be aware of them and know how to, and know how to defend against them. Yeah. So it's like three things. I'll recommend to offer two really quick, just speaking of violence in particular and how to deal with sure. this. R Rory Miller. I don't know Dance if you've ever read the books of Rory Miller. Um, he wrote excellent book called meditations on violence. Okay. Read that book. It's very good. And I think the principles in there could also be applied to the things we're talking about here on a metaphysical, spiritual information or, and then Kyle, you're, you have a podcast now. Yeah. You, you started a show, right? Yeah. Plug Kyle Serapin show. People can find it on uh, Beanpod. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple. Anywhere you go get podcasts. Um, there's one. It's also on Rumble if you want to watch the video version. And it's me uh, talking two days a week. And then we do a long form interview that we've just started setting up. They're going to be former FBI agents, former intelligence people, former awesome. um, you know people inside the, the administrative deep state that are going to just discuss what what it looks like on the inside. So people have a real perspective. I, I want to bring a found a balanced understanding of what the enemy actually looks like the enemy being sort of these bad policies and how do they get there and where do they come from. So people can follow that, the Kyle Serafin show. They can, uh, <coughs> excuse me, as I die. It's okay. It's all good. <laughs> it's, um, my producer is a, um, a former special agent as well. He spent 15 okay. years as a special agent and a buddy of mine. And uh, we used to laugh about having a podcast when we used to sit and do surveillance on the street. So we've kind of realized something. Um, he now has left the bureau under contentious terms and he's in the same group as me. So we have a little group of guys that we call the suspendables uh, recently covered by the New York times by a couple of hack reporters that they have that uh, are DOJ leakers. Typical. But, um, we are the, uh, the, yeah, the suspendables kind of make appearances on the, uh, the podcast as well to share just insight more than one voice. I'm, I'm really interested in hearing. I'm not the only person that knows what's going on. Clearly. I, I'm not saying I know all the things that do go on. So I'm bringing on people that do and, and letting them kind of have their long form discussions. So we do those on Mondays and then, Two days a week are, are like long form analysis for you know forty five minutes to an hour. Yeah. But if everyone uh, everyone could also follow Kyle on Twitter at Kyle Serafin and you'll see his cool banner there, the suspendables. That's how you know you're following the right guy. I already followed you on there. Uh, when we release this, I'll let you know. It'll probably be in a few days. We'll tag you in it and all of that stuff. But Sounds Kyle, good. thank you so much for your time, for speaking with us, for all of your insight for your bravery, for blowing the whistle, for speaking about these things. Um, it's commendable and we respect it a lot. We respect you. 
Well, thanks for having me on, guys, and uh, be safe. You're in New York. You're in the belly of the beast, so you'll, yes, you'll have my are. prayers. My wife is from Brooklyn, so I, yeah. I know exactly what that world is about. If you're, ever in, if you're ever in town, man, hit us up. We'd love to have you. Yeah, I'll do that. And we're going to end the recording. Yeah. Stay safe. Stay sane. I'll see you guys later. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, give us money. I love you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Later.